Genesis chapter 20. I'll read the entirety of that chapter for us. This is God's word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed into Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, the man's wife for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all of these things. <clears throat> and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did, the, did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abram prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female servants so that they bore, bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our, uh, our ears to hear uh, the wonderful truths of your gospel from this portion of Scripture in Genesis chapter 20. So God, I pray that you would give us attentive hearts to what you have to teach us. Uh, God, I pray that we would seek to honor you and glorify you even as we listen and as I speak. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you're familiar with the, uh, the singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens, I've already been called a hipster today, so I'm just going to take this to the next level and quote from Sufjan Stevens. Um, but he has a really beautiful and haunting song entitled John Wayne Gacy Jr., now, if you know who John Wayne Gacy Jr. is, you are wondering why someone would write a song about this man and also why I would describe it as beautiful. So hold that thought, because if you don't know who John Wayne Gacy is, I have to explain this for the introduction to make sense. John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer. He was known as, to just make it even creepier, he was known as, as the killer clown because of his hobby of dressing up as a clown and performing at birthday parties on the weekends. 
all of his victims were young, younger, teenage boys, college-age boys, and it's reported that he killed at least 33 of them in the 1970s, who police later found buried underneath his Chicago home in his crawl space. He was known as one of the most brutal serial killers of all time. And Sufjan Stevens writes a song about him. The first couple of verses, he's describing his life in a lot of ways and saying how he grew up and then what he's, what he's done. Um, but the song is not so much about a serial killer, but more a song about the depravity of the human heart. Because we could look at somebody like John Wayne Gacy and go, disgusting, criminal, I would never do such a thing. I'm so much better than that person is. And then the last verse of Sufjan's song. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. So last week, we were in Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. We saw the buffoonery of Lot. We saw him offer his daughters up in this gross way to this um, sex-crazed crowd. We saw his wife turn to a pillar of salt because of her disobedience, her longing to go back to this sinful city. And then we end with his daughters committing a disgusting act with their father. And so we get back to a place like this in Genesis chapter 20, and we see Abraham's back on the ticket, and we might think to ourselves, well, at least we're back to the hero of the story. At least we're back to someone who has an unwavering faith in the Lord. Someone who, who understands who God is. Who, who would never really mess up. And then we quickly find out, hopefully you saw that in the reading, Abraham is a lot like Lot. That when we look beneath the floorboards of Abraham's life, we see the hidden bodies. We see the sin that he has still buried in his heart. But also, also what we see and what we learn is that we too are just like Lot. That we too are just like Abraham. And what this tells us is, is that Abraham is not the hero of the story. No matter what your children's Bibles used to tell you. And it also tells us that you and I are not the hero of the story. We can't handle being the hero. It's too much weight for us. We can't save ourselves. As human beings, a temptation that we have, um, or tend to have, is to operate out of one of two things. We either try to operate out of, out of shame or fear. Pretty common emotions, two very strong emotions that have all sorts of, of, of tenets coming out of them. So we tend to, to have more shame and fear than we care to admit floating around in our hearts. So when, so when we're operating out of something like shame, uh, we tend to have an explanation for everything. It's so-and-so's fault. It's not my fault. It's, uh, it's, 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 that's, not what, that's not what I meant to say, or that's not how I meant it. And so we try to explain things away in our shame. When we're operating out of fear, we tend to let it make our decisions for us. So we fear the opinions of others, so we create a false reality on social media. 
we fear the opinions of others, so we lie to others that we are doing better than we actually are. And leaning into either one of these as an answer to a particular situation, just so you know, is an automatic rejection of the truth and reality of the gospel. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, um, Christian counselor Ed Welch says this. He says, fear of man is always part of a triad that includes unbelief and disobedience. That's what the fear of man drives you towards, is unbelief and disobedience. And we'll see that today in the text. And we don't see it in Lot. Lot's gone from our story. Don't really hear about him anymore. We're not learning about this from Lot's wife. She's a pillar of salt. Doesn't have much to say anymore. Or Lot's daughters. As we may assume, could easily all, they could all demonstrate this for us today. But, but who we learn this from today is our man, Father Abraham. Because you would think this, that this part of the story, as, as an author, you would think, uh, could you give us a bit more explanation about what went down and why it went down with, with Lot and his daughters there at the end of Genesis chapter 19? I know some of you would like to have a further explanation for that. But he doesn't. And I think one of the reasons for this is so that we can see that it's, that it's not just those whom we view as buffoons or those sinners over there as the only ones capable of making foolish choices. But even someone like Abraham, a giant of the faith, can do this. A man who is referred to over and over again in the New Testament, he's looked back upon as this great example, he's regarded by the Jews as the great father, and even later in other religions like Islam, Abraham is this great man. He is a man of utmost importance. And yet he's still a descendant of Adam. One who has, like us, been imputed with the sin of our first parents. So I want to look at this scene this morning in three ways. And this is in your worship guide if you're taking notes. One is through lingering sin. Two is through failing faith. And then three is through restoring grace. Lingering sin, failing faith, and restoring grace. So first, lingering sin in verses 1 through 7. So if you've been with us with uh, this year in the entire Genesis study, um, this incident in Genesis chapter 20 should sound very familiar. You should be like, I've heard this before, and can flip back into your, in your Bible. Because in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, Abraham and Sarah have a similar situation to the one happening to them here in chapter 20. So to recap, the first time this happens is when Abraham is going into Egypt. So he's going down to Egypt because he's afraid that they're going to run out of food and they're all going to die. So, and then as he goes down, he fears Pharaoh, who is the ruler of the land, and so he tells Sarah to tell those in Egypt that she is his sister. <clears throat> so we learn that when he does this, primarily as a means to protect himself. So just listen to his words to his wife in chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. 
and that he may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Let me get some water, guys. Drinking water while everybody's watching. So anytime in marriage, if you know this, making I statements or you statements tends to mean that the conversation is headed in a wrong direction because the conversation has just become self-centered. <clears throat> so this is the situation that's, that's happening with Abraham here. And, and we know this because it doesn't end well for him in either one of the situations, in Genesis 12 or in Genesis 20. So it concludes here, as it did with, in Egypt, with Abraham being rebuked by a pagan ruler and running back to his homeland with his tail between his legs. And now, here, 25 years later, 25 years later, the same sin is repeated. Exactly. Almost exactly. So, so much so that Bible critics use this incident in the Bible to try to, try to say the Bible is unreliable. To try to say, this is the exact same, th- exact same story that happened in Genesis chapter 12. So it's an attempt to show the unreliability of the scriptures. But let me just tell you that it's a poor attempt. For one, the details are different in both cases. So not easily mixed up details either. So two different kings. So one, you have King Abimelech. Uh, is, different, is a different character than, than a pharaoh in chapter 12. <clears throat> chapter 20 has Abraham in the land promised to him. So this is the promised land that Abraham is dwelling in. In chapter 12, he's in Egypt. He's in a pagan land. But a major detail these Bible critics leave out or forget is, is, the, is to factor in the sinfulness of humanity. That's the one thing they, they, don't, they don't add into the equation is the brokenness and depravity of who we are. The brokenness and depravity of our nature. So much so that a man like Abraham, who we often put up on a pedestal and sing songs about, could repeat such a devastating sin. One that you would think someone would say, if you committed a sin like this, <coughs> that was so public, would say, I will never make that sort of mistake again. I've learned my lesson. And yet Abraham doesn't learn his lesson. <coughs> And the reason why this sin in Abraham's life is repeated is because he still has sin lingering in his heart. He's allowed space for sin to run rampant. So look at verse 13. Abraham tells Abimelech where the decision to lie like this started. He says, When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, his wife, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. So what's happening here is Abraham is working out of fear. He's fearful in certain ways that we didn't know he was fearful way back in chapter 12, verse 1. So it seems that Abraham and Sarah had a secret side conversation here. That that right when they were setting out, they came up with this sinful pact, this lie to tell. So we can kind of understand at the beginning, Abraham's young in the faith. He's called out into an unknown land from everything that he did know, from his parents, from everything that was familiar. But 25 years later, we still see this sin intact. 
and, still, and it still produces the same embarrassing results. Nothing changes. And so within this blunder, Abraham, again, has potentially jeopardized God's plan. Remember, he has promised a child, and he gives his wife up to be married to somebody else. So maybe your response to this is, how could Abraham do such a thing again? God has promised him over and over again. He has seen God answer his prayers. He has had God meet him in miraculous ways. And again, like I said last week, I'll say, hold your judgments loosely concerning anybody that you run into in the scriptures. Because we too fall into similar patterns, don't we? Sin patterns, that is. So you need to ask yourself, what sin in your life are you allowing space for? What sin in your life are you still holding the door open to? What sin in your life uh, lingers just below the surface? And maybe it's something you haven't done in a long, long time, like Abraham. But it's still there. God says to Cain after he's killed his brother, that sin is crouching at your door and that its desire is for you. And that's true of every one of us in here. Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, to kill you. So it's important to not only be aware of sin in your life, but to do something about it. So we don't just go, yeah, I'm I'm a sinner, and we don't do anything about it. The Bible says... The way we deal with sin is through confession and repentance. We've already done a little bit of that today, but Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Will obtain mercy. In his book, The Doctrine of Sin, or The Doctrine of Repentance, I should say, Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan writer and pastor, wrote that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Sight of sin, so you acknowledge it, you can see it, it's there, it's public. Sorrow for sin, you're sorry about it. And then confession for that particular sin. Shame for that sin, so sometimes shame does work to your advantage. Hatred for sin after that. And then finally, turning from sin. That's what true repentance is. Is you're acknowledging your sin, and then ultimately you're turning away from that sin. And if anyone is left out, Watson says, repentance loses its virtue. You're not really repenting if you lose any, lose any of those ingredients. <clears throat> because the longer you let sin linger the longer you give sin time to take root in your heart. And if that does happen, you may find yourself falling to the same sin even 25 years later. This may be a sign that your faith is failing as well, Well, as we see Abraham's faith doing just that in verses 8 through 13. In these verses, we see the extent of Abraham's lingering sin and how it causes, in this particular moment, his faith in God to fail. And once again, it's the pagan king who rebukes Abraham. 
an embarrassing situation again. Look at what Abimelech says to Abraham in verse 9. He asks him the question, what have you done to us? And then further on, he's like, why? What, 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 what causes? Why would you do this? I have done nothing to you, Abimelech says. What have you done to us? Well, this is one of a couple of places in, in chapter 20 where we, where we hear an echo of Eden, where we hear an echo of the garden. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, God asks a similar question to Adam and Eve after they've sinned against him, after they've, their faith in God has failed. God asks them, what is this that you have done? What have you done? And their response, as we probably all know, is to blame shift. So they're working out of their shame. So Adam blames Eve and then ultimately blames God for giving him Eve. It's the wife that you gave me. And then Eve then blames the serpent. And on it goes. So back to Genesis chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. Abraham does something very similar to what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. Abraham said, after Abimelech asked him, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And then in verse 13, Abraham says, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So what's even more devastating here to Abraham is that this pagan king in this particular situation is more righteous than Abraham is. Even in verse 4, we see Abimelech doing what Abraham did in chapter 28. So when Abraham's uh, pleading with God to spare the righteous in, um, in Sodom, Abimelech does the same thing here. He says to the Lord, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Will you kill people who have done right, who are, you could translate that, righteous? So he appeals to who God is, appealing to the righteousness of another. I'm going to play a little Monday morning quarterback here with Abraham's life. But this should have been what Abraham based his actions upon in this particular moment. Abraham should have rested in the righteousness of God instead of acting out of his fear of man once again. Ed Welch, back to to when people are big and God is small, he says, when God and spirituality are reduced to our standards or our feelings... God will never be to us the awesome Holy One of Israel. With God reduced in our eyes, a fear of people will thrive. We make God small, then people become large. So Abraham should have said to Sarah, his beautiful wife, and obviously she was still beautiful at 100. So he's still, still, somebody's still coming and kidnapping his wife from him. So Abraham should have said to his beautiful wife Sarah, Sarah, God will not let the righteous perish. Remember my petition for the righteousness of Sodom, Sarah? Remember when I did that? God was willing to spare that wicked city for the sake of only ten righteous. That's amazing that God would do that. Therefore, he will protect us against King Abimelech or any other king for that matter. Any situation, we have no need to fear because our God is with us and he is mighty, Sarah. That's what he should have said. But he doesn't do this. 
And so in verses 11 through 13, we are left with these stumbling and bumbling words of Abraham trying to justify his actions. And it's actually, if you read them, just kind of on their own, they're, they're really cringeworthy to just listen to them. Abraham says to King Abimelech when he's answering the question, why'd you do this? He says, it tells him, this is my sister, you know. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. I mean, you can just imagine the situation happening there, and Abimelech just kind of looking at him sideways, going, what is wrong with you? You know? So instead, Abraham should have, should have confessed his own lack of faith in God at this point before Abimelech, rather than trying to justify his actions in this way. I, I recently read another article about, by a Christian counselor um, that was a personal blog post that he wrote about his own personal experience with shame. And one of, one of several personal observations he made about shame I thought was particularly relevant here. And he said this about himself. He's talking about himself here. He says, shame turns you in on yourself. I was immediately caught up in my head distracted and analyzing, talking about a shameful experience, trying somehow to find a way to convince myself that I didn't do something wrong. I felt disconnected from those around me. It seemed like there was a piece of me that wasn't fully there. This describes our man Abraham, doesn't it? Abraham is essentially turning in on himself and tries somehow to find a way to convince himself and others around him that he didn't do anything wrong. So it's the same pattern of Adam and Eve. Did you catch that? He tries to first blame Abimelech in verse 11. I thought there is no fear of God in this place. So I thought you would kill me because of my wife. Then in verse 13, he does exactly what his first father Adam did, and he tries to blame God. And when God caused me to wander, not when God called me, to, called me out of my people and told me to go to the promised land, but when God caused me to wander from my father's house. This is the plan I came up with. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? And we can say the same thing about ourselves. Think about when you sin. Is your first response to confess and repent? when you yell at that person who cuts you off, when you make a sarcastic response to something that your wife says that you don't particularly like, when your kids are not being perfect, and so you rail off on them, is your first response to confess and repent? Well, if you're like me, probably not. It takes me a minute. Actually, several days probably. But... I seek to justify myself. I seek to, to, to try to say, like, look, I was right in this situation. It was their fault by doing whatever it was that they did that caused me to do this. I deserve to be angry at so-and-so because they were mean to me or they said, they said something that was a lie about me. I can say the words I said because they said certain words to me and I'm not going to let somebody walk all over me and talk about me in that way. Or we blame God. If God didn't bring me to this city or put me in this job or in this marriage or at this church or with these friends or in this family, 
then these things wouldn't be happening to me. I wouldn't be sinning in this way. I have to respond in this way. It's God's fault for bringing me here, for putting me here. But the proper response would be to quickly admit your guilt before God and also to others you may have sinned against, as Abraham did uh, with Abimelech and his entire household, to confess your sin and repent and believe the gospel once again. Because at the end of the day, the cause of Abraham's sin and our own sin is not just a minor slip-up. It's not like, oops, I sinned. It's actually a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of belief in who God is when we sin. So despite everything that Abraham has walked through with God, Abraham did not believe that God would take care of him in this new situation. He believed for some reason that God would abandon him this time. That God would not come through. And so he thought, I will take care of myself. I will, I, will, I will put into motion this plan that Sarah and I came up with so long ago. To which we see in a lot of ways, like Sodom could have, could have had a disastrous end. Until God enters into the story once again. To restore grace into the life of Abraham. So both, both lingering sin and failing faith show us that Abraham is not Jesus. So, so God's people are expecting the snake crusher to come. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. They're expecting a Messiah to come. Abraham is not that Messiah. He fails just like his first parents failed. And that we are not Jesus either. Just in case you thought you were perfect. We need God's intervention of grace at all times. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We need God's intervention of grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 in the New Testament, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Abraham has nothing to boast in. You have nothing to boast in except what God has done for you in Christ. You can't boast in yourself. So what was credited to Abraham as righteousness in chapter 15 of Genesis was not his good deeds, but God's work of righteousness in Christ. So Paul, again, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. So Gentiles are just non-Jewish people. So probably everybody in this room is considered that. So Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel. So the gospel there, speaking about the gospel, is the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. God was announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham, and this is the way he put it. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with, the Ab- with Abraham, the man of faith. 
So as believers in Christ, we need to be living from this posture of grace that we have received from God in Christ. So how do we see God's grace towards Abraham here in Genesis chapter 20? So just so you know, there's a lot of you in your Bibles, you have those, those little subtitles before chapters. Um, and just so you know, those are not inspired. Those were, at, those were added later by the publisher as well as the numbers that you see in there. You, the Bible was, didn't have any of those things to start with. Those are just there for, to help us. And sometimes they're not that helpful sometimes, at, at times. But, but in Genesis chapter 19, if you notice, the title there is God Rescues Lot. And then in the ESV. In the CSB, chapter 20 is actually titled, God Rescues Sarah. But what I think the more appropriate title is, God Rescues Abraham. Because that's exactly what's happening here. And in that rescue of Abraham, we are witnessing God's amazing grace towards him. Look at verse 7. God's speaking to King Abimelech. He's having this conversation with him. And he tells him, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. Abraham has just repeated a devastating sin that he committed 25 years ago at this point. He's potentially jeopardized God's promise to him again. He's embarrassed himself, or as we would say in the South, he's ruined his witness before this unbelieving king. And when Abimelech learned the truth about Abraham, what Abraham did, he he must have thought him a hypocrite. This guy's a hypocrite. He says he loves God and that God has done all these amazing things for him. Or he's the worst kind of, of coward. He's a liar. I mean, Abraham almost had him killed. This guy's life was on the line. And then look how God handles the situation. God calls him a prophet to Abimelech. And even more, he has Abraham pray for him, lay hands on him, and pray for him. And not only that, in verses 14 through 17, Abimelech even shows him favor. He gives, him, he gives him certain things to, to show that they, they have been vindicated, that, that, they are, that they both are at peace here in this particular situation. Abraham doesn't deserve this. He has done nothing to deserve this. But that's what grace is, isn't it? <clears throat> it's getting something you don't deserve. And we know God has shown Abraham grace because the Bible reports it. <clears throat> One commentator pointed this out for me. Sorry, my voice is changing. I've had this COVID cough going on for months. But he's he's actually, this sin that Abraham commits, God never brings up again. And even when you look into the New Testament, you see he only brings up the things, four situations in which Abraham's involved in. Leaving his home and family for the promised land, which was great faith. staying in the land during times of great deprivation and danger, believing that God would give him and Sarah a son in their old age, and being willing to offer up Isaac, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. So not once does God refer to his past sin. God has shown him grace, which means he has forgiven him in Christ in this particular situation. 
and removes his sin as far, as way, far away as the east is from the west. Now, if that's true of Abraham, that's also true of those who rely on the same faith Abraham did. That means that even in our best behavior, we are still just as in need of the gospel as he was. And so we too are reminded that we serve a God who remains sovereign even when we doubt what he's doing in our life. A God who remains gracious even when we sin. And a God who, do, who can and does rescue us in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder.